it up for Mike for making it through that whole reading. <laughs> he did great. <laughs> we are uh, glad to have the Word of God put before you and want to make sure these stories are being brought into our minds. We are studying the book of Acts, and we are actually on part number 17 or 18. Um, we've got a few more to go till we get to the end, but we are nearing our destination, and we are studying the book of Acts because it gives us the clearest picture of what authentic and real Christianity actually is. The book of Acts shows us genuine, authentic, the truest form of Christianity. And this is important for both believers and for non-believers. It's vital because you can't actually say that you accept Christianity if you don't really know what it is. And it's probably not wise to say, I reject Christianity, if you don't know what it is. I meet a lot of people um, that aren't Christians. I spend time talking with them. Some people that are Christians, or used to be Christians, that say, I just can't be a Christian because I don't believe X, Y, or Z. And I'll say, well, I'm actually a Christian minister, and I don't believe what you're describing to be Christianity is X, Y, or Z. There's actually a portrait of Christianity told about in Scripture that when you evaluate it, you can find out if you should accept it or reject it. And Acts, the book of Acts, is that clearest picture. Well, the picture we got today that Mike read for us, this story, is kind of an interesting one. It all revolves around the idea of idolatry. Idolatry. So Paul was in Ephesus for over two years in the hall of Tyrannius, speaking and teaching and teaching and speaking and preaching over and over. And it says in the beginning of chapter 19 that almost everyone in Asia had heard the message that Paul was preaching. The whole province of Asia had come in and out and listened and understood the message of Paul, so much so that you notice even Demetrius himself, Demetrius is the silversmith who is making some of the idols, even Demetrius himself can quote the things that Paul teaches. He knows what Paul is teaching. Paul has been that pervasive in his teaching. And so the picture we're seeing today is of a mob that is rioting because of their idolatry being attacked. And although we haven't, uh, in, up to this point in our study of the book of Acts, specifically addressed the topic of idolatry, now is the time to do that. But all throughout the book of Acts, we've been seeing the gospel confront people's idols, people's idolatry. And so that's really what the book of Acts is about. It's about idolatry and the gospel coming to head and the gospel confronting it. And so today, what I want to do in our time together is do three really simple things from the text to see what we can learn about how the gospel and the mission of Christ, when they come and confront idolatry, what really takes place. So the first thing we're going to learn is that idols are pervasive. They are in all of us and they are everywhere. We'll see that in just a moment. Number two we're going to see that idols are both powerful and completely powerless. They're both of those things. So idols are pervasive. Idols are powerful, but powerless. And we're going to see that idols are difficult to destroy. Everybody up for that? Those three things? You ready? Okay, let's do it. Number one, idols are pervasive. If you notice in verse 26, and at, well, really 23 through 28, 
Um, Demetrius, the silversmith, is talking a lot about what Paul was saying regarding idols. And this message of uh, idolatry in contrast to the gospel was going everywhere to all the people in Asia. Paul must have been preaching this message on repeat almost. He probably had this certain set of things that he said, and every day he would go to the Hall of Tyrannius, which was a place of lectureship um, where people would come and learn, and over and over he would argue and reason and witness and testify and persuade people that you are idolaters and the gods that you're making are not really gods, but let me tell you who God really is, over and over. In fact, he probably said it so much that it became like a catchphrase. You can see Demetrius kind of saying Paul's catchphrase, and it's really actually kind of a good one, one that you should probably pay attention to. And it makes a lot of sense. Paul's phrase is this. If you make your God, then by nature it's not really a God. Pretty smart, right? Incredibly simple, uh, pretty clean to say that, but Paul is brilliant. And what he's saying is, if by your hands you make your God, by the very nature of you making it, that thing that you have now made is not a God. It's not divine. And Paul is just over and over and over beating this drum that if you make your gods, they're not gods. And the thing that you are asking your God to give it won't be able to do it because you've made it with your hands. It's smaller than you. It's within your grasp. It's been created out of your mind. And I think what we see in Paul, John, Peter, Jesus, God, the prophets in the Old Testament is this one idea is this. That you really can't preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of God, without opposing the idols that are in people's lives and in people's hearts. What Paul is showing us is that you actually can't preach truthfully the fullness of the gospel message without presenting it in a way that confronts the idols that people have in place of God. People everywhere have idols, and if you don't confront saying, listen, the gods that you've made, that you serve, that you worship, that you live for, Here's the true God and put them in confront, uh, confrontation with each other. You might have missed the gospel. What's key for us, what's key for us this morning is to really take a moment to discern. What do I think my idols possibly are? What are some idols that I might have that I treasure, that I worship, that I serve, that uh, are bigger to me than who God is? What are they? And if we don't know that, we might be missing the impact of the gospel in our life without really knowing that. And I can understand some pushback at this point, some questions that might arise like, well, wait a minute, we live in a Western, enlightened, educated, you know, we're sophisticated, we're a society that, that really we don't even have much belief anymore, so I'm not sure we have idols anymore. We're not like sort of the archaic, you know, polytheistic first century people that, that made these little statues and idols. That's kind of strange. We're, we have seasoned ourselves up out of that. And I would push back to say this, that absolutely idolatry is just as rampant today as it's always been. What is an idol? Is it just the little uh, silver statue that sits on the shelf? No, those are just representations of the idols that people make in their hearts. Here's what an idol is. 
An idol is anything, anything that is more foundational to your joy, to your purpose, to your identity, who I am, to your meaning in life, and to your hope. An idol is anything that is more foundational to those things being good and true than God is. And whatever that is, that thing is becoming an idol. Simplest terms, the thing that you make most important in your life that is above and greater than God has become an idol. This falls back all the way to the Ten Commandments when God said, you shall have no other gods before me. What he was saying was, anything you put before me by nature has become a god has become the idol that you serve, that you worship. Here's some ways that you can find out what your idols are. You might ask this question, how would you finish, how would you fill in the blank, this statement? Without this blank, I'm not sure I'm okay. Fill in that blank. Without this, fill that in. I'm not okay. That could be your idol. Or maybe this way. My life has no meaning unless blank comes true or blank happens or blank is in it my life has no meaning there's no point in living if i don't have this that could be your idol another way to discern your idol might be to fill in this sentence when i finally get this then i'll be okay how do you fill that blank in in your life when i finally get this the job that I've always wanted, the spouse that I'm longing for, the house that's just right. When I finally get the reputation that I want people to have of me, when I finally attain a certain moral standard, when I finally have regard and people are in awe of me, or I have fame, or I have fortune, or I have celebrities, something. Whenever I have this, then my life will be okay. Whatever that this is, is your idol. You see, idols are often... Very good things that Satan convinces us to make an ultimate thing. That's all idols are. It, sometimes, yes, idols can be our drugs and alcohol and, and, and things that we use to escape that are negative to uh, our life and our behavior. Yes, that's most certainly true. But most often, and for us, those of us in this room, if you're still resisting idolatry, it's, it's real. For most of us in this room, it's we take good things. And Satan convinces us to dismiss God and make that good thing our ultimate thing. So it can be things like our family, parents approving of us, or children behaving the right way and representing us a certain way. It can be our career or money. It could be achievement and fame. It could be our moral record. It could be our reputation. It could be our looks. It could be a political or a social cause. It could be our abilities and our competence. Do you see... All of those things, in fact, if you go back and look at the Greek gods, and you go look at you know, the pantheon of gods, all of those Greek gods in the first century that these guys were talking about represented those things. There were gods of fertility and gods of success and gods of popularity, and there's actually a god that would help you throw great parties. Did you know that? You guys know his name? Please tell me you don't know his name. Okay, you don't know. That's good. I was worried for a minute that you knew him. Do you see, actually... Uh, in the first century, they were overt, and we're just covert. They were explicit, we're a little implicit. And the gods are the exact same thing. The things that, that are good things that we make ultimate things, 
that we ask them to be God for us that can't be God. And we struggle with idolatry. So idolatry, number one, is pervasive. Number two, idols are powerful, but they're also powerless. You notice, first of all, they're powerful. The whole city is enraged. There's a riot happening, literally. When they see, when, when the city of Ephesus sees that there's a man who's a Jew that wants to speak for two straight hours, they chant at him, great is Artemis. Like, it wasn't enough just to like tell him, hey, we think Artemis is greater than Jehovah. That wasn't enough. The people in the marketplace of that city were chanting at him and jeering him and mocking him and saying, great is our God. They were in a rage. And as we'll see, the idols that these people served had no power to really do anything. But these idols became incredibly powerful in their life because of the power, not that they have, but from the power that we give them. Idols get their power, not from their own source, because they're made things, they're created things. Idols in our life get their power from the power we give them, from the expectation we have of them, from the requests that we bring to them, from the desires that we're asking them to fulfill, from the importance that they're asking them to give us. We transfer all of these things that we've needed from God, like identity and worth and value and purpose and meaning and hope. We've taken all of those things that we're supposed to get from God and we've taken them and given them to the idol and said, please give these to me. My heart needs them. And when you do that, you put power into that idol's hands. And we have hope and expectation of them. What we want from idols has the power to control our entire life. When you ask an idol to give you what only God is supposed to give you, you have now given power to that idol to control every decision you make and every place you go and every person you interact with and the way you do that. It shapes your life because you're asking this one thing that's not God to give you what God is supposed to give you. So if it becomes your career, you will sacrifice important things in your life because you believe career will give you what God can give you. The number of children that are sacrificed on the altar of career is unbelievable. We say we don't practice children's sacrifice. We do. The number of people and relationships that are sacrificed at the idol of money or status or fame is unbelievable. The amount of peace and hope that we leave at the altar of these idols in pursuit of something that we'll never really find in them is unbelievable. They have power in our life, not because they possess power, but because we give them the power that we're supposed to get from God. That's what idols do. They're powerful, but you got to know this. They're completely powerless. Idols are created things. They, in and of themselves, by themselves, have no power. They're not like God that are omnipotent, that power comes from within them. They're not like that. They get power attributed to them. They take power from you. One of my favorite places to see how this plays out is in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7. When uh, after Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he goes up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And they know, um, you know, don't, uh, don't commit adultery or idolatry. And they're there, they're waiting for uh, Moses to come back down. And they go to Aaron, they say, hey, we need to make an idol. So they collect all their gold. Remember what happens? They throw it into the cauldron and it melts. And 
according to Aaron, I don't know if this is true, I'll have to ask him someday. According to Aaron, uh, a calf just came out of the cauldron and it was uh, there. But I I'm guessing somebody probably shaped that. But do you remember what they said about that calf? They said, here is the God that led us out of Egypt. They gave that God the power that God had given them. And it says in Exodus 32, verse 7, you've got to read real careful to catch this, but it says, after they worshipped and served that calf, they had to rise up and go play away from that God. Why? Because the idol that they had created in their life takes life from them. It doesn't give them life. Your idols sap you of life, of energy, of power, of joy. They take life from you. They don't give you life. God is the only God that you can serve that will infuse you with life, not take life from you. So your, your idols are powerful, but they're also powerless. You notice that Paul is constantly through the book of Acts preaching the gospel in contrast to our idols because Christ is the only one who can give you what you're looking for. No idol can do this. And see, the ugly relationship that we have with idols is this. You and I will kill, we, we will kill our idols with the expectations we have of them. It might be our job, might be our family, might be our friends, but when we make those things our idol, we will kill them with expectations. And they will eventually kill us with their inability or their, their disappointment, with their imperfections, you might say. Because they're not real gods. Think about it this way. Let me illustrate it for a moment. In a relationship, let's use marriage for a moment. If one spouse makes the other spouse their idol, meaning I only have worth because you tell me I'm valuable, or I only have purpose because you tell me what to do, or I only have meaning because you're with me. If, if a spouse makes another spouse their idol, they will put expectations on that spouse of meaning, of worth, of identity, of value to get back from them what they need, and that spouse will never be able to live up to that. They won't be able to do it. And the moment that spouse is disappointed, it will crush you. It will disappoint you. You see, we kill our idols with expectations, and the idols kill us with their imperfections. If you do this with your career, and you look to your career to define you and give you worth and identity, and you'll, this will drive your behavior, you'll take jobs for titles and for money, not because you love what you're doing and believe in it. When you look at career and say, I want you to give me identity and worth and value, you will take jobs for status, for titles, and for money. You won't take jobs because you believe in the work that you're doing and like it. And the moment that job says, I'm not sure we need you anymore, you'll be crushed. And the moment that job says, someone else is actually performing this better, you'll be crushed. Do you see how idols will crush you. Idols are powerful because of the power we give them. But idols are powerless because they cannot deliver the very thing you need. So how do we fix this? How do we deal with it? Number three, idols are difficult to destroy. They're difficult, number one, because they're costly. If you go back in chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, uh, the Ephesians that were converted in the synagogue before Paul went to the hall of Tyrannius to preach... Um, there were a lot of them that were converted and they believed in Christianity and they were all of a sudden noticing they need to make some changes in their life. And they brought all of their books because they practiced sorcery. 
They brought all of their books that taught them how to practice their sorcery, and they had a huge bonfire with them. And the Bible says that the worth of them was like 50 drachmas. Uh, the best research I could do uh, in figuring out what that was worth is equal to about $2 million today. That the Christians that were converted in Ephesus said that our idolatry is worth burning these books because we don't believe that we should live with them. You see, this is difficult because destroying idols will be costly. Becoming a Christian, listen to this, is not just adding to your life the belief that Jesus is your Savior. That is not what Christianity means. It's not just adding to your life a belief in Jesus. Christianity is also removing the current belief you have that something else can satisfy you like Jesus can. You've got to face that and challenge yourself with that and destroy that. You've got to change your beliefs which change your life and Christianity only becomes real to you when your life actually changes. If becoming a Christian for you was just the addition of a particular intellectual belief, you're missing a major component of Christianity. It is confronting the things that you trust outside of God. And that's when your life changes. So number one, uh, idols are difficult to destroy because they're costly. But idols are really difficult to destroy because guess what? If you destroy one, your heart's just going to make another. Our heart is an idol factory, meaning that we were designed and created, Romans chapter 1 says, to worship and serve something bigger than us. This is why we have the whole concept of celebrity and fame in our culture. Like, like why do we care about Brad and Angelina, right? Like, why do we care about that? Or LeBron James, the reason we're drawn to that stuff. Have you guys seen that video, by the way? Let me just tell you quickly. They were interviewing college students about who won the Civil War and um, who was our vice president. And they were asking questions like that. And the college students were, you know, you've seen Jimmy Kimmel do that. They're like, uh, I don't know. You know, just, and then they go, who is Brad Pitt married to? And they, they all know right away. And, they, you know, who was his wife before Angelina? They know right away. Well, why do we do that? We're drawn to love worship and honor and be in awe of something bigger than us. And we don't do that with God, we do it with people or other things. Idols are difficult to destroy because we will constantly be making more. So you can't just cut an idol out of your life. You can't just have an idol and say, I'm going to cut it out of my life and be done with it. Because you'll just make another. What we have to do to get rid of our idols is do what Romeo did with Rosalind. How many of you remember Rosalind in the story of Romeo and Juliet? Anybody remember Rosalind? Yeah, she's at the beginning of the story. Romeo actually loves Rosalind. He adores Rosalind. Rosalind is the one that he wants to marry and be with for the rest of his life. And Rosalind decides at the beginning of the play that she is going to be celibate. And Romeo is destroyed, desolate, weeping. His life is over because Rosalind does not want to be with him. She wants to be celibate, which is probably a pretty bad sign for Romeo. Um, <clears throat> but good thing for Romeo, he's got a friend named Benvolio, who basically convinces Romeo to come to a party where he says better looking girls will be there anyway, so you should just come with me. That's the modern version of it. And it's there with Benvenilo that Romeo meets Juliet. And later in the play, I'll quote to you the the famous line of Romeo. Remember when he says, But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. 
It is the east. And Juliet is the sun. And he says, arise, fair sun, and kill, kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou her maid art far more fair than she. What Romeo was saying to Juliet was, I want you to rise to prominence in my life. You are the sun now. I want you to rise in prominence and kill the envious moon that only shines because you gave it light. What he's talking about there is... um, uh, Rosalind saying she's the one that, that I used to love, but if, but if Juliet would rise in my life and shine, it will put to death the love that I had for the other. And here's the point. You will not be able to cut out idols from your life. You just won't be able to do it. But what you can do is replace idols. Your heart is designed to love, serve, worship, and honor something. And to ask for something outside of you to approve of you, to affirm you, to give you value, identity, and worth. You're always doing that. This whole notion that I just am in myself and I tell myself I'm fine is a complete and utter lie. That's why you see at the very end, Jesus tell the parable at the end, at the last day when Jesus comes back. What's the two words he's going to say that's going to make all of us just know it was worth it? What two words? Well done. Because we long for somebody outside of us to say, you have done well. You are my child. I love you. I cherish you. You are who you are because you're mine. And if you don't get that from God, you're going to find somebody or something to give it to you. And that idol will run and control and destroy your life. Anything can be an idol. Watch the good things. So here's how you obey and let's get out of here. Number one. You need to prayerfully discern where your main idols might be. you got to be serious about this. Everyone in here, pray and talk to God about where are my idols. Number two, prayerfully discover what it is that you really want from your idols. What are you looking for from those idols? And then ask God, how can I get what I'm really looking for, not from the idol, but from Christ? And number three, here's the tough one. You ready? If you really want to obey this week and really want to change, here's the tough one. Number three, share what you're discovering about your heart with someone close to you in your life. I'm putting that forward as a serious challenge to this body here. Not just a theory, but serious to you all. Find somebody that you know cares about you. Think reflectively about where your idols might be, what you're looking for in those idols that Christ is supposed to give you. And when you find somebody close in your life, Share that with them and ask them for insight and accountability. And you'll see that idol in your life that is promising you things that can't deliver will slowly fade away when you see that Christ is all in all the very thing that you always wanted. And if you don't have him today, we certainly want to make him available to you in the gospel call. You can come as we stand and sing.